Welcome to episode 125 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's happening? What's happening is I love it when we have generous guests that give us amazing things to give away to our listeners. That's what's happening. I know. We have a book to give away. We do. So we have, uh, if you listen to our episode, uh, which was two episodes ago, episode 123, with uh, Rob McKenzie about his new book called Identifying the Seed, which is basically uh, like a comparative analysis between classic covenant theology and dispensationalism. Um, They had a little bit of audio problems on their end, so the audio is a bit rough. So if you haven't listened to it, uh, go back and listen through. I know the audio is a little bit tough, but it's worth it. It was a great a great interview. But we have this book to give away. Can I brag on this book just for like a second? Yeah, let's do it. So what I love about this book is I really think it stands alone in its category. It's super unique because Rob grew up in basically one tradition and then was converted, so to speak, into covenant theology. And what makes him special is he really can speak the language of both sides. Like there's no translation error with him. Everything yeah. is right on point. And I learned so much from our conversation with him and especially from the book, because it's like being able to go behind the curtain and ask all those questions or get to know all those things you'd really like to ask, but might come off as like rude if you were yeah. asking, having a conversation with somebody you didn't really know well. So because he can speak the language of both sides so clearly, so crisply, this thing is definitely worth reading. Even if you read all kinds of other books about dispensationalism and covenant theology, this is like right in the sweet spot. And I really love that his emphasis is, emphasis is more or less, we need to get together and talk about this in a way that's cogent and respectful. And he yeah. pushes forward a lot of information on how to do that. This is worth your time. It's a really great book. Yeah, I haven't read it. I've read a little bit about it. It's really good. But his conversation when um, Theology Simply Profound kind of came to the forefront of my attention, they did this like 13 part uh, series on dispensationalism um, that I think was probably one of the most thorough and best treatments um, that I've ever heard. And because because Rob is, as you say, com- came out of a dispensationalist framework, he really understands the theology. And because he still has many people in his family and in his circle of friends that are still dispensationalists, he has like a vested interest in being uh, fair and charitable. So it's really a winsome presentation that I don't think you get in a lot of other places. Even someone like Sam Storms, um, who used to be dispensationalist, he's, he's a bit more aggressive um, right. than... I think Rob is. So not that Sam Storm's book, um, Kingdom Come, is bad. It's a very good treatment. Um, But Rob's treatment is just much more winsome and much more charitable. And I think because of that, it's a good um, book, even if like you have dispensationalist friends and family, um, to give them this book and say, hey, let's let's read this book together and talk about the differences we have. But let's also talk about the places that we are on the same side. And, you know, we're partners in this fight against whatever it is, you know, against um, the powers of darkness, against, you know, the the things that would keep the gospel from spreading. Like, let's partner in this and look at all the areas that were the same. So if you if you haven't um, already got the book and you don't win a copy tonight, go back and look at the show notes for um, episode 123, because in the show notes for episode 123 is information about how you can get a copy of this book at a discounted price, um, which Rob was generous enough to offer just for Reformed Brotherhood listeners. 
So who was predestined to receive this book from eternity past? Our winner for tonight, drum roll. I'm not going to add a drum roll sound effect, even though <laughs> most production. places would. Yes, post-production. There will be no post-production. Uh, is Brett Rudder. So, Brett, if you uh, are interested, which Brother I Brett. assume you are since you entered, uh, email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com from the email that you entered the contest using, uh, and we will get the information on how to ship that to you. Uh, and I hope you really enjoy this book. That's a strong name right there. It is a good name. Yeah, get that man a book. So I have another exciting announcement. That I don't even know if you know about this yet. I, Based on the tone of your voice, I have do, definitely do not know what you're talking about. So uh, like two weeks ago, maybe, we introduced regular Reform guys as members of the Society of Reform Podcasters. That's true. And now we have also added a new show called Reform Pilgrims. And oh, yeah, I saw that. What's great about this show is this is not quite 100% homegrown, but this is sort of a homegrown um, Society of Reform Podcasters podcast. So I actually approached um, these guys at one point and said, hey, do you want to start a podcast? Um, and, and I've been working with Jordan for, I don't know, probably like six months we've been talking about him starting a podcast. Um, so when they came to me and said, can you help me help me get this off the ground? I was happy to give them like the meager little technical experience I have, but we're excited to bring them onto the Society of Reform Podcasters as kind of like a newer show. Um, because one of the things we want to do in this new year as the Society of Reform Podcasters is really help to cultivate and foster uh, like an increase in reform podcasting. Right. So I don't know exactly why uh, there's not like a really vibrant Lutheran podcasting community or like a really vibrant um, like Arminian podcasting society. I, I don't know why the reformed community has taken a podcasting so much, but it really seems to have done so. Um, so if you are interested in starting a podcast and you are a reformed Christian, um, I would love it if you email me at Tony at reformbrotherhood.com so we can start to talk about some of those details um, because we really want to start to cultivate um, really just a vibrant community and a vibrant um a vibrant source of audio resources for people to really learn and be edified in their faith um, coming from a reform perspective. So shoot me an email. I would love to talk to you about how to get started in, in reform podcasting. Um, we've got lots of great resources. I can help you get set up on a technical perspective, um, but just let me know. And this is probably a good time to remind everyone that if you're super bored of our voices, you should just surf on over to reformpodcasts.com where you can find all kinds of other reform podcasts on that yeah. nice little network. There's all kinds of good stuff, including the new one, which I was listening to this past week. And I love those brothers, even though yeah. they kind of like semi stole our affirmations and denials. It's all good. In charity, <laughs> my, I accept that. That's my doing though, because they asked me and I was like, it's kind of, I was like, it's good to have something sort of stable and sort of like people can expect and like know what to, they're getting at the beginning of your show. So um, they're like, well, we could do affirmations and denials. I was like, no, make it your own thing. So they're also, you know, Jordan is doing this 60 second episodes. I don't know if you've seen these, but he does these 60 second episodes of reformed pilgrims on, on Instagram and Facebook. And they're like really good. He's He like drills down a topic and he really like thins it out to 60 seconds. Um, and he does like a consider this segment at the beginning of it. So it really is like a condensed 60 second version of their podcast episode. So it's, it's pretty cool. There might not be many new things in reformed theology, but that's gotta be one of them because reformed theology is not necessarily known for its brevity. Yeah. So. But he, 
he does Kudos a good job of distilling it down. They're really good episode, little short, quick hits that you can share on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Kudos to them. So speaking of which, on tap tonight, we've got a little bit of question action and we're, we're going back into the archives a bit. This is from an email that we received a little while ago, but I think it's a really interesting question. It's, it's basically a response to a quote. So are, are we ready to get into some question action? Let's do it. So this question actually stemmed from an episode in which we were talking about, I think, Ordo Salutis, the logical decrees of God and how those logical decrees do not follow some kind of temporal order. You know, when you're baking a cake, there's a temporal order, a sequence of events that are discrete. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you can't bake the cake until you actually make the batter. And so that's not, in fact, the way in which kind of the salvation works, although there is, of course, a logical order that's outside of that. And so someone sent us this, this quote and kind of wanted some feedback on that. It's not necessarily about logical order so much it's about understanding, I would say, like the agency of God in regards to sin. But let me throw the quote at you because I think this is enough wonderful material for us to start asking or answering some really good questions in response. So I'm going to read you the quotes and then we'll play that game that you love, which is who said this quote? <laughs> all right, <laughs> of let's all do the it. people in the universe, dead or alive. And I'm going to actually give you a hint of who said it okay. at the outset, which I, I believe will, will definitely help you get it. So here's right. the quote. Quote, every Bible-believing Christian must conclude at least that God in some sense desired that man would fall into sin. God wills all things that come to pass. It is in his power to stop whatever might come to pass. It is, in, it is within his omniscience to imagine every possible turn of events and to choose that chain of events which most pleases him. But wait a minute. Isn't it impossible for God to do evil? He can't sin. I'm not accusing God of sinning. I'm suggesting that he created sin. End quote. I don't need a hint. That's R.C. Sproul Jr. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. I was going to give you this, this great hint of something that I just learned about him. That he just started writing for a baseball forum? Come on. You know did that you too? Also, did you also hear that he got fired two days later? Yes. Come on. <laughs> no you surprises are so angry tonight. right now. I am. I was like, this is such great. Because I thought I thought you might actually know who, who it was from. Yeah. Do you know what it's from? Do you know what piece of writing? Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's a it's a book on the... on. Um, isn't it called Lord Overall or something like that? Oh, so close. Not Lord. Is it God overall? No. So Sovereign close. overall? Ruler overall? <laughs> so close. Jesus overall? Almighty overall. Oh, close enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was really super anticlimactic for me, at least. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you just want to tell me that you already know, or should we just stop the podcast now? Like, uh, No, I don't think so. Okay. So here's, I think that there's a lot to react to on, on this, but I think basically what the listener was kind of driving at was how we feel about that last portion. The, I'm suggesting that yeah. God created sin, which this gets quoted a lot, I think, from him because the language sounds a bit inflammatory. And so I want to start off by saying this. There's a lot of discussion among theologians, I think, as to which verb best describes God's agency in regard to evil. And I think when people see this quote, they're like really already, even probably some of our listeners, they're reaching for the heretic hammer like right away. So hold hold on that for for just a second, because when we speak about God's agency with regard to evil, here are like some possible words we could throw out there, right? To describe that, some verbs. I've heard authors, uh, causes, controls, creates, foreordains, incites, uh, permits, predestines, predetermines, produces, stands behind. What, What are some other words that come to your mind? Um, Did I get them I mean, all? 
Yeah, I mean, you did a pretty good job of getting any really any word that has to do with like causation or bringing to pass um, any sort of phrase that that brings those concepts to bear um, has been used throughout the history of Christianity to describe um, how it is that God stands in relation to sin. And then, of course, um, there are those who um, who would affirm to various degrees that God is not does not stand in any sort of causal relationship um, to sin. Um, I I don't know if I would go so far as um, R.C. Sproul Jr. here does to say that they're not Bible believing Christians, which is an implication of what he says. Um, I think there are a lot of Arminians who um, look at the scriptures and they come to this conclusion um, that God doesn't stand in any sort of real causal relationship to sin. Um, and then of course there's like the open theists, the process theologians, the um, the people who would say that God is not only not, doesn't stand in a causal relationship to these uh, things, but he couldn't stop it and he didn't know about it and he was kind of taken off off guard by it. So those people would be beyond, you know, like the realm of biblical Christianity. Um, but there are plenty of Arminians or, or plenty of just evangelicals who haven't really reflected on it that well. Um, that would be just aghast at the idea that God somehow causes sin. And I think that drives to the first point for me, at least. And that is like when theologians, which we really to go back to our Spall senior, we're all theologians in some respect. Right. Need to really give some careful thought about which of those terms, if any, should be affirmed and in what sense. Because the words are like we've talked about before, they're the tools of the theologian. There are tools as well. And so we need to be careful yeah. about them. And I, I think that's why this is a really brilliant quote to react to, because I think what the listener is driving at here, what maybe we should be examining whenever we read something like this, because of the words being used here in the understanding of agency and evil in terms of God is whether God can be the efficient cause of sin without being to blame for it and trying to understand what is being said in the words that are being used. Yeah. So maybe, maybe starting off, we can talk about kind of the classic, um, the classic reformed articulation of this and how how it is that that preserves God from culpability. And that word is important. Culpability is actually um, being guilty of a thing. So you could be responsible for something, um, but not be culpable for it. So I could be responsible for a car accident, for example, but not bear any culpability. Um, so, so classically reformed uh, Christians and just Christianity as a whole – has affirmed that because God is sovereign, um, he's either actively or passively responsible for the fact that there's sin, but nevertheless, he remains inculpable for those those sins. Um, so another way to think about it is like God uses sin, but he does it sinlessly. Um, he's not uh, implicated in sin when he causes sin or when he allows sin to happen. Um, so, the, you know, you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith um, and chapter... 11? No, I have to find it here. It's it's chapter two or three, I think. Probably chapter three. Um, yeah, on the decree. This is great podcasting. Huh? <laughs> um, chapter three, uh, section one. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So to break that down a little bit, God decrees 
um, God decrees all things in eternity past. And then by the acts of creation and providence, he executes those decrees. Um, and we affirm that this is true, but we qualify that by saying that God is not the author of sin and uh, the, the will of creatures is, is still free. And so there's a mystery. There's a profound mystery to how exactly that can be the case. Um, but then the confession here goes on. This is where it really becomes important. Not that the rest of it's not, but this is really the, the money shot. Nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but it's established. Right. So the way to think about this is um, if we talk about primary cause, God, God is the first cause of all things. But the secondary cause, you can think of this as the the way that it unfolds in nature, like the natural causation of something is the secondary cause. So we can both say, as the Bible does, um, that God causes the rain to fall, right, as a first cause. But that's not in any sense in conflict with the fact that God has established a mechanism by which that happens. Right. So it's not as though God is miraculously creating rain, each raindrop um, out of nothing, you know, as it falls. Um, it's that he's established a, uh, contingency of necessity that when certain conditions are, are the case, rain falls from the sky. And so when we talk about sin, the natural, the natural, um, causation, the secondary causation is our own will. So we, we sometimes don't think of our wills as, as though it's part of nature, right? But, the fact that our will is inclined towards a particular sin, and so we um, we inevitably commit that sin, is no less a secondary cause or no less a natural cause than the fact that rain is water droplets coalescing around a you know a dust particle until it reaches a certain capacity and then it can no longer stay in the cloud and then gravity pulls on it. All of those natural causes are the secondary causes. The primary cause of all things, though, the, the cause that stands behind the causes, that's that's a way to think about it. The cause behind the causes, the cause that causes the causes, that's a hard thing to say, but that causes God. Right. And so that that establishing of the secondary cause is the way that God and, and again, there's a mystery to exactly what this means, but the establishing of those natural uh, contingencies is something that's established by God's will. It's executed in the way he created and in the providence of maintaining the universe in a particular way. But those secondary causes, the gap or the distance between the primary cause and the secondary cause is how we account for God not being culpable for sin, even though he's responsible for the fact that sin has occurred. Right. That's pretty good. I think that's right on the mark. And we'll explain, I think, or evaluate how we would react to his statement. But all this is actually necessary, I think, to provide right. that reaction in this yeah. context, because yeah. there is this sense that there is that for the reform, sometimes there's a contradiction in here and there's not, like you said, because the answer is really found in the fact that although God foreordains, and I'm just going to use that word because that's what I prefer, right. he, he's going to foreordain whatever comes to pass. He causes the bringing of those things to pass in widely different ways. And you've already spoken about like the physical world for some extent. And, and God does not cause like the bringing to pass of the actions of personal beings in exactly the same ways in which he causes the bringing to pass of events in the physical world, because he, he does not cause man to do things against their will, but he determines their will and their freedom as right. persons is fully preserved when they perform all those acts. So right. the acts remain our acts, even though they are, we are led to do them by the spirit of God. 
And yet when God causes the bringing to pass of the evil actions of men, he does that in even a still different way because he does not tempt the men to sin. We, that's James makes it very explicit. He does not influence them to sin, but he causes the bringing to pass of those deeds by the free and responsible choices of personal beings. So God has created men with really this awful gift of freedom of choice. The things that, that we do in exercise of that gift are our acts and yeah. they do not surprise God by the doing of them. You know, our doing of them is part of his eternal plan. And yet in the doing of them, we, and not the Holy God are responsible. So this is why there's, there's a lot of nuance there, but we're not splitting hairs. Like the, this is, we're trying to be like theological precise in a way that's mainstream as opposed to, you know, some kind of like strange branch of this argument that that's, this is actually the center. And yeah. it, it behooves us to understand this because the classical Arminian response to this is that God created or caused sin. And they're using those words in a particular way, right. but in a way that God is the progenitor of sin because they see, as they look from the outside at this reform perspective, that there can be no disconnect between, well, if God ordained it, at least in their minds, ordained is similar, is equal to create, which is equal to culpability, right? Right. Yeah. And just to sort of like flesh out this language a little bit um, and to sort of... Um, talk a little bit more about how the Westminster and the the Baptist tradition, the Reformed and the Baptist tradition, um, preserves the freedom of the creaturely will. Question 13 of the Shorter Catechism uh, is, did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they are created? And the answer is, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, right. fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. So this, this idea that... Um, you know, sometimes we've talked about this before that sometimes, um, particularly sort of like your tulip Calvinist who just just discovered reformed theology and just discovered like the the freedom of sovereignty in God, like the freedom of understanding God's sovereignty, they sometimes swing too far um, coming out, of, usually coming out of an Armenian context. Um, they swing too far and they start to say things like, well, humans don't have free will. Well, that's not what our confessions teach. Our confessions teach that humans have a free will in the sense that their wills are not coerced, right. but they have a bound will in that their, their wills are self are corrupt. And so those corrupt wills are inclined towards certain things. Now, Adam and Eve's will was not corrupt. So there's a there's a different theological explanation that ultimately resolves in mystery um, as to how it could be that the, the first humans fell when they had no corruption of will. But the idea that we don't have free will, that's a that's a position called hyper Calvinism that that. People don't have a free will that that there's no possibility of salvation, right? Even even um, the idea that we would say not all people have the opportunity to repent. That's not really what our confessions teach either. All people have the, the, the opportunity and the natural ability to repent and follow Jesus. But what we lack is that our wills are bound to sin and bound against serving Jesus bound against turning to Jesus, unless the Lord himself turns those wills and frees them. And then once those wills are freed from sin, now they're free to follow Jesus and they invariably will. So it's important to parse these out. I know this sounds like really, really difficult technical stuff and it is difficult technical stuff, but it's really important to parse this out because sometimes Calvinists actually are the straw man that Armenians paint them out to be. Right. Right. There are Calvinists out there who swing so far to um, far to one side 
that they really are ending up saying that God causes, God is the author of sin. Like Jonathan Edwards, of all people, ends up in that position because he holds a philosophy called occasionalism, where literally there is no, there is no continuity between moments. So each moment in time is a discrete moment. And each thing that happens is immediately caused by God. He denies secondary causation. I don't know if he does explicitly, but he denies secondary causation implicitly. And that results in God being the author of sin. So we have to parse this out carefully and we have to be careful as we do that not to fall off the edge where we are affirming something that's contrary to what our confessions as a faithful summary of the scriptures, what they teach, because then we're, then we're saying something different than what the Bible teaches. And that's why we have to know what we mean and what the scriptures say, and then be able to articulate that in some way. Yeah. Especially I think in this case, using lots of different words. Because if we pin ourselves to one word in particular, we're more likely to make an error here. But yeah. and this goes back to evaluating the comment. So for instance, if somebody were to say, does God's, God cause sin? I mean, use, use the causal word or use cause there several times. And that's common, especially in kind of that more traditional literature, especially like if you look at the creeds. So right. and Calvin was big on this. So like, for instance, in concerning the eternal predestination of God, Calvin teaches, uh, quote, for the proper and genuine cause of sin is not God's hidden counsel, but the evident will of man, end quote. And then in the same context, he states that Adam's fall was, quote, not without God's knowledge or or ordination, end quote. So you're getting exactly what you just talked about there. There's a little bit of both. God is not causing sin, but it's not outside his predetermined will. Again, now I'm using, trying to use a, a kind of a plurality of words here that I think try to express like the root of the idea. And even if you go back to like to the canons of Dort, for instance, um, written there is, quote, the cause or blame for this unbelief, as well as for all other sins, is not at all in God, but in man. Right. So it strikes me when I look at those texts and, and some others as well, what I'm seeing is like in those quotations, cause in some ways seems to take on the connotations of the term of the author. And so right. for those writers to say that God causes evil is to say, or perhaps like to imply that, that he is you know, not to blame for it. So note like the phrase, like the cause or blame in the cans of door, which are basically synonymous. They're, they're basically treated as, as the same word there. But Calvin is at the same time rejecting that God causes uh, sin, but at the same time, he's affirming ordination. And so yeah. for us, like the modern reader, like those are probably not, the distinction is not evident. Like when you hear cause or ordain, you think those are the same word. Right. For these guys, they were not. So this goes back to trying to understand how the person was using these words because this is complicated and what they actually meant. That, that's why we're talking about this in this kind of grand sense before we talk about the quote itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those situations where, um, you know, everybody's a theologian to quote R.C. Sproul senior. Um, but the fact is that this is top shelf theology. Like this is hard, right. difficult stuff. So, um, you know, I, we've, I think I've mentioned this series before. Um, I'm actually going to put these episodes up in the uh, Society of Reform Podcaster mega feed. So if you're not subscribed to the mega feed, you should go over and subscribe to it. But if you go to Sermon Audio, and I'll put a show uh, link in the show notes um, for this episode. If you go to Sermon Audio and you look up um, James Dolezal, um, who's the author of um, 
uh, all that is in God. He did a series. Um, he was part of a like a conference. I think it was like the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference or something like that. But if you look down his most recent entries in sermon audio, this is just the way that I know how to get to it. Um, you'll see that the series is listed as like SRBPC 2018 or something like that. Go there, listen to all of them. Um, there's a really interesting lecture by John Fesco about like a duel that was challenged at the Canons of Dort. Um, that has nothing to do with the topic. So you can skip that one, but all the other ones are really good. And Dahl is all is really um, precise and technical. He's kind of like a modern day scholastic um, in that. And I mean like scholastic in the technical sense in that he is parsing out these fine distinctions in classical ways, um, but he's doing so in a very winsome and very direct fashion. It's hard stuff. It's technical, but it would be well worth uh, our listeners time to go back. And, you know, this is, this is one of those lectures you don't listen to at more than one time speed. Like you go back and listen to it a couple times at, you know, like 0.75 speed so you can get it all. Um, But you have to really start from the foundation that even though God stands in a causal relationship to all secondary causes, all effects, right? God is in a causal relationship to all created effects, because if he wasn't in a causal relationship to a created effect, then that created effect is in a sense, God, because it's its own, it's its own caused effect. Um, if God is not the, the, the first cause of all created effects, then there's something outside of God that has created something that's not in that causal relationship. So it's important for us to maintain that causal relationship, but we also have to recognize that the way that God stands in a causal relationship with all created effects is different than the way that created effects stand in a causal relationship with other created effects. That's so you can said. kind of think of it, you can kind of think of it like the billiards example, right? right. When I, when I use, um, when I use the cue, the cue to strike the cue ball and the cue ball bounces off the rail and then hits the next ball. And then that ball bounces off a rail and hits the next ball. There's a causal relationship. There's a causal chain that occurs through all of those, but the causal relationship between, um, the cue ball striking the second ball is different than the causal relationship between me striking that. Um, that first ball. But all of those things are still secondary causes. And God is the first cause behind that. And he is he is causing those balls to strike each other in a different way than I am causing those balls to strike each other or that the balls are causing each other to strike each other. So it's important to preserve that distinction between God is the first cause and um, and then created effects as secondary causes. And that distinction for me in terms of God's agency in bringing about evil has been helped by understanding what it means to speak of like remote cause and proximate cause. And that we brought yeah. this up before, but it, again, it fits in so nicely with what you just said, because that's basically what you're describing. This idea that as God is the remote cause and then human agency is the proximate cause. And one of the best examples that my mind always runs to when I think about this, how can I help me sort out what that means is when we look at the life of Job. So Job recognizes that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, you know, he says, may the name of the Lord be praised. And so when all this calamity happens to him, for instance, the thieves, which are the proximate cause of the evil are guilty, but Job doesn't question the motives of the Lord, who is the remote cause. Right. And so we're, we're trying to get out. It's helpful to parse that stuff out because this is not necessarily one of those conversations that's pure armchair theology. If you engage with anybody who's suffering or going through something, you know, in that old saying that if you speak to somebody 
who is hurting, you'll never lack for an audience. And you're, you're speaking about your faith and your commitment to God, your fidelity to the scriptures. Inevitably, this is going to come up. How do we understand and explain the role of sin in the world, especially for a God whom we say is loving and sovereign and compassionate? So I think we have to be able and ready to give an answer. And the yeah. answer has to be something that you can like sit across from your kitchen table or in your workspace and have this conversation. Right. It can't always happen at like the book club level, even though I love book clubs, it, it yeah. has to be a, in a space where you can lovingly explain this and it makes sense. And a lot of, I think the metaphors that you just used are really helpful to that. And so, I mean, if we turn ourselves back to our, in toward like this particular quote, then this is why I think we have to talk about all the things we have so far, because right. when I'm evaluating a quote like this, aside from the beginning part of, with the phrase, every Bible believing Christian, if we just kind of right. knock that out for a second, uh, knock that out of the park, so to speak. <laughs> um, if, uh, I appreciate that you got that pun. Um, I think this comes back to, I'm always trying to evaluate what are they saying here in the words that they're using? Are they trying to make God the efficient cause of sin and also make him capable or be allowing him to take the blame for it? Or are they, or are they saying that God can be the remote cause and not the proximate cause? Yeah. So like, how do you evaluate something like this? Do you have a rubric which you approach it by it with, or do you just kind of I mean, because this can be so open-ended, like with what he's saying here in, in some respects. Yeah. So there's a couple of questions that I, I always ask um, and, and sort of like an overarching thought process is we, especially when we're dealing with um, a brother in Christ who we have no reason to believe holds heretical theology or anything like that. Right. Um, you know, R.C. Sproul has some views that I would disagree on. Um, R.C. Sproul Jr. I mean, R.C. Sproul Sr. too, but R.C. Sproul Jr. is who we're talking about. Um, but I have no reason to think that he's a heretic. So when I see a quote like this that is a little bit squirrely and makes me pause, I should start from the perspective of trying to understand how what he's saying is orthodox because I have right. every reason to assume that it is. Right. Um, well said. That said... I also have to recognize that someone who's in a public position of teaching should be, and rightfully so, held to a higher standard of clarity and precision and accuracy than someone who's just started a theology blog, right? There's there's different degrees of what we should expect of people. Um, people should expect more out of me in terms of precision and accuracy and clarity, because I have theological training, because I'm a leader in the church, all of these different reasons, those things have to be taken into account. So at the end of the day, my assessment of this quote is that it's a bad quote. Um, and, and I have a little bit of background of actually talking to R.C. Sproul Jr. about this. He was a he was a member in the Reform Pub briefly. Um, and so I actually talked to him about this quote. And I actually think he's going beyond what the Westminster uh, tradition, what the Bible allows for us to say about right. um, about what it God's relationship, his causal relationship to sin um, for a number of reasons. I, I, I don't know that we want to get into all of the details. Maybe we do. How many? I don't know. Oh, we got we got some time left. We can get into all the details. <laughs> get into um, those details. But but I want to want to make clear, though, that when I first read this quote, my reaction was uh I got to be missing something about what he's saying, because this is this right. is really not right. Like, this is really bad. This is a really bad quote. And what he's saying is is um, and I mean this in this sounds a lot worse. No, it doesn't sound worse. It's an impious mistake to make. Right. Anytime we make an error, 
that has to do with what we're saying about God, especially when we're saying something directly about God and we make an error, that is sin. Like whether I'm, whether I'm doing it, whether R.C. Sproul Jr. is doing it, it is a sin to believe and say false things about God. Intentionally now, or not. Intentionally or not. Now, this is probably not an intentional sin, right? R.C. Sproul, I can say, I know it's not. R.C. Sproul was not intending to blaspheme God, but right. that's why, part of why the Bible says that, that not many should be teachers. And I don't consider this a public, like a teaching ministry or anything like that. But you could kind of say like, not many should be podcasters, which is kind of ironic since I did this whole plug about everybody being a podcaster. But um, that said, though, this quote does cross into the territory of something we ought not say, um, because it does. I think it does the way that it's constructed. And I, I don't it's been a long time since I've looked at it, but I read more than the context of this quote. Like I read a little bit more of that chapter and broader, um, broader in the book. Um, than just like the immediate context. And it really is the the whole point of the book is really to say that God is exhaustively in control and exhaustively right. causing all things. Um, right. It's kind of that perspective that his father took on like, there are no rogue molecules in the, the, um, in the universe. And it actually almost goes so far as to sort of like an Edwardsian uh, denial of secondary causes, right? God is really in each action in a causal relationship of an efficient, like efficient causation, um, which is, is a step too far beyond what the Westminster tradition um, would hold. Right. I think in these final sentences of the quote, the issue is really, at least for me, I don't know how you feel with the verb created. I think that's what yeah. people gravitate towards and mm -hmm. they feel that it commands too much, but it's offset at least in part for me by the preceding sentence where he says, I'm not accusing God of sinning. So once I studied that and took a look at it, I also looked at it more in context to make sure I got kind of the full flavor of what he was going for there. And I totally agree with you. I think it's just not as well written. And I think the verb choice there, for whatever reason, he chose that verb, perhaps because he really wanted to emphasize what the, the sovereignty of God. But if he said, I'm suggesting that he caused sin, that would at least be well within the vein of the historical use right. of that term, the way that we already discussed it. And there might be a lot less fanfare over it for that very reason. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I think it's just poorly said, but who hasn't said some things poorly? Who hasn't said some things poorly on this podcast? His name yeah. is Jesse, because <laughs> I've definitely had my fair share of like things. I was just like, man, I listen to that later. I'm like, man, like who, why would I even say that? I, yeah. I, yeah, I can't even handle it. So uh, I'm with you. Like, I think that, um, I like what you said at the top of that by being just focusing on what is probably assumed should be orthodoxy in this first before just jumping to the. Oh my, oh my word, I do not like the the verb that he used here. Yeah. And I'm just going to hit him over the head with the heretic hammer, uh, which is like the, apparently like the new, I'm, I'm going to create like some kind of heretic police character that, that is like yeah. his weapon, like an equivalent of Thor. Did I get that right? Dude with yeah. the hammer? Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. By the way, um, on a quick side note, I appreciate that we had uh, some listeners that jumped to my defense about my comment about the Death Star being like the thing that you can't escape. Did that, you see but that? That wasn't even what you said, though. <laughs> you didn't say you can't escape the Death Star. You said all roads lead to Death Star. No, I'm pretty sure I said something like you can't get away from it. No, you said all roads lead to the Death Star. Did I? See, you here's, did, yeah. here's just another another error that I've made that yeah. I just can't go back and correct. It's forever enshrined yeah. in, on the internet in audio form. So, But I, I think that you're right. We have a certain expectation among those who have some training or at least are trying to, to educate, to kind of be at a level of precision with the language. But here's the thing. It's possible that, of course, like he chose this language very 
specifically to communicate some kind of point or to emphasize or maybe to even overemphasize so as to make a point something about God's sovereignty. So it's, I guess I would say it's just a bad quote, but I'm, I'm not going to go as far as to say it probably, it overreaches, like you're saying, I yeah. think in my opinion, it overreaches, but I'm getting the sense from when I read it in the larger context of the chapter of almighty overall that he was trying to overreach. I mean, is, was that your impression as well? Yeah. And I mean, that that's actually something that's worth saying is, um, R.C. Sproul Jr. and R.C. Sproul Sr. both had, um, both have this tendency. Um, I suppose R.C. Sproul Sr. doesn't have this tendency anymore, but there was a tendency um, in their teaching ministries to overstate their case for the purpose of um, of effect. To, to sort of drive home a point. So we see that, you know, in R.C. Sproul Sr., we've talked about how there's some squirrely things that happens in his Christology where he wants to say that the human nature of Christ died, but God didn't die on the cross, which is just a it's, it's just not a good way to speak. And, you know, having talked with some people who are in the know, that was an overcorrection or, or an overreaction to a patripassionism where the father was suffering that they were right. encountering. So, so he, he would take that statement and he would kind of like crank it up to 11 in order to drive the point home. And RC Sproul Jr. In my experience, instead of going to 11, he cranks his rhetoric up to like 15. Um, and he does that in a lot of different places. And I do want to, I mean, I want to be clear. I think you and I might actually be in a little bit of disagreement on this. I actually think that there's a theological problem underlying this statement that is, um, overstepping. I don't think that it's just that he chose a poor word. I don't think that you do either, but I don't think it's just that he chose a poor word. I do think that, you know, in the, the context of his overall writing um, in that book and in other places, and then also having spoken with him about it, I do think that he actually, at the time of writing that book, was going going to the point where he wouldn't say that God is the author of sin because he knew he wasn't supposed to. Right. And so he actually picked this word to kind of communicate that same reality in a sort of softer way. Um and so there, there are some major issues um, that that he spins out in that book about the way that God is um, involved in causation in general that I think um, does just cause some problems with with God's interaction with the world in the way that that Sproul um, articulates it. But I, like I said, though, I, I don't think that he's a heretic. Um, I don't think that he is intending to um, make God evil, right? He's not, he's not trying to say that God is the sinner. Um, he's trying to say that God is sovereign over sin, right? That, that was the point right. he was trying to make. Um, but I think that in his zeal to drive the point home and in his zeal to correct the error that he was confronting, I think he probably not only linguistically overshot his target, but I think theologically he probably overshot his target a little bit too. I actually think in the context of just this small snippet, these several sentences, he may actually be more right than wrong. And what right. I mean by that is I think he's, you're right. I think he, the use of created sin is trying to come back against the preceding two sentences, which is he can't sin and I'm not accusing God of sinning. So it's clear he wants to make that point. Right. It's just, I, I just don't like how it finishes there, which I think where the listener's concern came from too. And probably most people, when they get to the end of that, they're like heretic. Like they just want to yeah. go straight there because we bristle at that. But at the same time, we've just spent a lot of time talking about where God falls within his agency. And we use the word like caused a lot. I mean, I think we both feel comfortable with that word cause. Yeah. And it's yeah. possible 
that you might be talking to somebody, even somebody in the Reformed tradition and say, well, yeah, I definitely believe that God caused sin. That statement by itself, absolutely true. And I would stand behind that. It would be helpful probably for most people to unpack what you mean, but there's there's no doubt that you could say that and people would certainly bristle at it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's part of why it's important to know your audience. And, you know, this is this is maybe just me, but when you write a book, you don't really have control over who your audience is. Like you have in your mind right. who you intend the audience to be, but you don't have any control over who actually picks up your book. You don't have any control over what else they may understand or know about theology. So especially in written written mediums, um you know, in, in verbal mediums like this, it's not even as, as, um, as stark, but in written meetings, you really have an obligation to be as clear as possible and to take the extra time to, um, you know, you can't do this with everything, but to take the extra time to try to anticipate the issues that might come up from what you're writing and to clarify them within your own writing, right? This happens a lot where someone will write something and someone will misunderstand it. And then they'll they'll point out why it is that they misunderstand it. And then the person acts like offended or acts like their the reader is stupid because they misunderstood them. When in reality, the lack of clarity in their writing is what caused it. And so that was actually the experience I had had with him was I approached him and said, you know, um, this is a little squirrely. I'm not really sure what you meant here. And it doesn't seem right. Um, and he kind of came back at me like, well, you know, you should just understand what I'm actually trying to say. And I was like, why would I understand what you're actually trying to say right. instead of what you actually said? Um, and so him and I had a good conversation about it. It wasn't very long. It was a long time ago. I'm sure he doesn't even remember it. Um, but it, it was a good conversation. But we just have to be really careful. And so, like I said, you have to know your audience. You have to understand what they're saying. So when I'm having a conversation with somebody, um, if they're a reformed Christian, I'm going to be using, I'm going to try to use confessional language as much as possible. If I'm talking to an Arminian who's trying to challenge me and how it is that God interacts with sin and what the relationship is there, I'm probably going to even stray away from words like cause. Um, we have to be careful because right. sometimes we say that God permits sin and we paint this picture like God is sort of like passively sitting in a corner watching it happen. And that's not really what the Bible teaches. That's not what our confessions affirm. Right. But but sometimes you have to use that language in the right context and qualify it in order to not put up someone's defenses because they don't understand the language you're using. So if anything, this conversation just highlights how important it is to be aware of the history of language and what different terms mean yes. and how different groups might understand them. Yes. And I think this goes back to, maybe this is just my hobby horse now, when in this particular subject, being able to converse about it, to be able yeah. to speak around the subject and kind of look at it from different perspectives and then be able to speak to those perspectives as you kind of turn the issue around in your hand or in your mind. Because, just, I, so maybe this is a totally unfair comparison. You let me know. Just as there is absolutely no good metaphor or simile or comparison for the Trinity, there's actually no real good word here or verb to describe right. the agency of evil with respect to God. Personally, yeah. I like cause the best. I, I dislike author the most. I think that would be almost like universally condemned in the kind of yeah. reform tradition. I, I'm with you. I don't like permitted really either. But in truth, each of those words has a small amount of advantage and a large amount of disadvantage. So yeah. it's about really trying to use them again as tools. And to your point, like, I guess you got to throw on the word tool belt. And when you're working on a particular project, man, this got weird. 
because uh, I'm about to talk about people. People are not projects. But when you're working, we're having a conversation with a particular person, which is akin to like working on a particular project in a sense, you need to know which tool you need for the job. And so the words do really matter. I mean, I think part of what we're driving at here is like, well, what is the real difficulty with what's being said? Right. Is, the, is it the difficulty of harmonizing the free will of the creature with the certainty of the creature's actions as part of God's eternal purpose? And I would say from biblical perspective, no, that's not actually right. the issue here. The real challenge is the difficulty of seeing how could or how a good and all-powerful God could ever have allowed sin to enter the world that he had created. And that is a question that we cannot answer because, yeah. and I guess like, is it so surprising that there are some things that we do not know? I mean, is it surprising that there are some mysteries which God and in his infinite goodness and wisdom has hidden from our eyes? Is it, is it really surprising that there are some things in his counsels about which he has bidden us to be content not to know, but instead just to trust him who knows all? Yeah. No. And, and this is one of those things, but I think what is maybe a little bit surprising is it's not the mystery that you think it is. Does that make sense? Like it's yeah. not this difficulty of harmonizing the free will and the creature. And earlier when you were talking about the Arminians and we, we love our Arminian brothers and sisters, of course, like we should just put that as like, like, you know how, like if you're in iTunes and you have a podcast or you're, you're subscribed to a podcast and they use some kind of like what I consider inappropriate language. Like there's always the E for explicit. I feel yeah. like we should have like a little heart that says like goes on ours and just says we are, love our Arminian brothers and sisters, like just <laughs> straight up as like our own disclosure because we do. Um, what was interesting about what you're saying is we we're talking about like this freedom of the will, the man being free. I, I've heard this argument that, well, to be human means to have freedom of choice because that's, that's what we have expressed in Adam and Eve, which right away to your point, I think that argument is disqualified because we talk about how their natures were not marred like ours were in terms right. of like the constitutional or sense of adjudicating uh, kind of this moral decision-making. But yeah. even beyond that, it got me thinking just with what you said, well, I mean, how do we understand then the freedom of Christ that he brings us if we're already free to begin with? If there really is yeah. no corruption in a complete sense, then there is no need for a new type or a progressive or a holistic type of freedom if in fact we already possessed that. So yeah. I, I think the real mystery here is not trying to understand free will of the creature and the certainty of the creature's actions as part of God's eternal purpose. But it seems like that's what people want to get after when they hear a quote like this. But again, I don't think that's what R.C. Sproul Jr. is saying. It's just not a really well-crafted um, you know, quote on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is where, this is the mystery that we have to butt up against is, um, and it's, it's actually the same problem we run into when we're trying to describe the Trinity or when we're trying to describe anything about God. You know, I was, when I read, um, James Dalzell's book, um, all that is in God, there was a, a state, a statement in there that just smacked me right in the face. And it was one of those moments where all of a sudden everything that I was struggling with in theology proper just snapped into sharp relief is that, um, if we affirm that God is simple, right? God is not composed of parts. Well, our language is composed of parts, right? So we can't even, we don't even have language to describe God because God is not composed of parts and our language is not, or is composed of parts. So in this, in a similar sense, um, you know, where the analogy between um, the, the billiard table and me, and then God and me breaks down is that, you know, I don't want to get all physics nerd because I'm not great at physics, but, you know, Isaac Newton has these these laws. I think it's the first law is that every cause 
has every effect has an equal and opposite effect, right? So when I strike the billiard ball with the cue, there's a there's an equal amount of force that's exerted back on the cue, which actually travels back into my hand. So right. when I strike the ball, the ball strikes me, and so the effect that I impose on the ball, there's also an effect that's imposed on me. And the 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 way that we can account for God being in a different causal relationship is that He causes an effect, but that effect does not cause any change in Him. And so we don't really understand. We don't really have a way to understand how that works. We don't have we don't have language that can ex- really explain what it's like to be a not only an uncaused cause, but an uneffected effector. Right. So it's it goes both directions. We we think a lot of times about the uncaused cause that he's the first cause, but we don't always talk about the fact that when he causes something to come to pass, that that thing he causes it bears no change in his nature, and that's actually. When I uh, when I analyze this statement, it actually starts off by getting that wrong. Right. Right. So God wills all things that come to pass. It is his power to stop whatever he might come to pass It is within his omniscience to imagine every possible turn of events and to choose that chain of events, which pleases him most so or which most pleases him. So that's the problem is that um, in a certain sense, if we're talking analytically Um, In a way where we're talking about what really is happening, not analogically in terms of how we explain something, but the reality of it is that there is nothing that pleases God because God is not affected or impacted by anything. And so even at the very beginning of this quote, R.C. Sproul Jr. is placing God in a a causal chain that ultimately does have an effect that bounces back to God when he chooses it. And as I mentioned, this is the same error that Jonathan Edwards stumbled into when he said that um, God, God was obligated to create the world because that expresses his glory even more than if he hadn't. Well, now what you've done is you've eliminated God's freedom not to create. Now you've made creation a part of who God is, which is pantheism. So we have to be really careful that, in whatever way we explain how it is that God causes causes sin, foreordains, predetermines, whatever, however we explain that, we have to preserve the fact that God, and this is how we can say that God is not culpable for sin, is that even though he causes sin, even though it, is, it comes about by his will, it comes to pass by his ordination, that he sets into motion the chain of events that brings it about. He, he establishes all of the contingencies, all the secondary causes— they're established by his will that that establishing of causes does not do anything to God. It doesn't change anything about God. And so we, we have to recognize that he stands outside of um, the normal kinds of cause and effects relationships and that he's affecting something, but is not affected by anything. Right. The comparison to physics, I think that's good. That's fair. So as to though, avoid any kind of hate mail from Newtonians or general lovers of physics, I'm pretty sure Newton's first law states that every object will remain at rest or in uniform motion okay. in a straight line unless compelled to change by an external force. Okay. Well, then it's so, the second law. I think it's the third law, actually. Third law. <laughs> the second law is that I hate apples. That's Newton's <laughs> second law is that apples are the worst. I'm pretty sure it's the third one, but somebody somebody can fact check us and then email us and tell us that we're wrong. I think I remember from my physics courses that all three of those laws are actually the same law, just articulated uh, in reference to different things. Yeah, there's so laws like, of motion. Right. The law that, um, that objects at rest tend to stay at rest is actually the same law as 
uh, every effect has an equal and opposite effect. It's just that the effect, the equal and opposite effect doesn't exist on an object that is in, is at is rest. Is at rest, right. Yeah. So exactly. it's the same. So I was right, actually. And the second <laughs> so law is still that Newton hates apples. So that's what this is about. <laughs> that's why they're fig Newtons and not apple Newtons. Uh, wow. I made that up. I just made that up. I was going to say that sounded really compelling though. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. So now that we've, uh, we've explained that and there's never going to be any more questions about how God is, uh, related to sin in terms of a causation. Never again. I, I think that we can just wrap it up. I think so. I hope that everybody will universally reference this as the definitive podcast in which we finally explained God's agency yeah. with respect to evil. Yeah. Nothing more to be said. That's why we There's have to end it here. Nothing more to be said. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, cause it's all over. <laughs> but if anybody else would like, again, to jump into the conversation, we always love to receive emails. Although again, they, they usually don't get the same kind of fun playing time as the voicemails because we can't hear an email. We just have to read it out loud to each other, it's which true. we don't do, but maybe we should do. That would be nice. But you can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Or even better, again, lend your voice, get in the conversation. You can leave us a voicemail. What is that beautiful number, Tony? 607-444-2767. Bros. 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 Jesse, this has been a good episode. You picked Tony, a good email. It has been. It's been a great... Hey, I don't... I mean, people send us wonderful, lovingly, thoughtfully composed emails and again, like I said before, we do read everything. We try to respond as best we can to a lot of what we receive. But like I was saying to you before we started recording, we never forget. We keep everything. So when we it do. comes time to looking through a topic that we think will be particularly relevant, um, we're always looking for emails. Like I should, I should go back. Let me look and see real quick when we received this email. Because I think it was like a little while ago. I'm sure it was guess? a long time ago. No, you not really. Guess when it was? No, I'll let this... you have this one, something that I don't know that you're going to bring to <laughs> wow. me. Wow. Thank you. That is super <laughs> kind and humble of you to do that so late in this episode. Actually, it wasn't that long ago. This was uh, June 14th of last year. Oh, that's so, not too bad. But that's just to say, again, we read everything and we don't just like, you know, it doesn't go to the, the trash box, trash box, yeah. trash bin, trash, trash box section. to the trash box, trash roll that right in the trash box. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that. Talk about using words and the, having them be the right tools. It is a literally a box of trash. So yeah, it's true. I'm comfortable with that. Awesome. Well, until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.